Section 9 of Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and its influence on morals and happiness by william godwin book one chapter five part two all the premises in the objection here stated are unquestionably true man is just such an animal as the objection describes everything within him that has a tendency to voluntary action is an affair of external or internal sense and has relation to pleasure or pain but it does not follow from hence that the pleasures of our external organs are more exquisite than any other pleasures it is by no means unexampled for the result of a combination of materials to be more excellent than the materials themselves let us consider the materials by means of which an admirable poem or if you will the author of an admirable poem is constructed and we shall immediately acknowledge this to be the case in reality the pleasures of a savage or which is much the same of a brute are feeble indeed compared with those of the man of civilization and refinement our sensual pleasures commonly so called would be almost universally despised had we not the art to combine them with the pleasures of intellect and cultivation no man ever performed an act of exalted benevolence without having sufficient reason to know at least so long as the sensation was present to his mind that all the gratifications of appetite were contemptible in the comparison that which gives the last zest to our enjoyments is the approbation of our own minds the consciousness that the exertion we have made was such as was called for by impartial justice and reason and this consciousness will be clear and satisfying in proportion as our decision in that respect is unmixed with error our perceptions can never be so luminous and accurate in the belief of falsehood as of truth the great advantage possessed by the allurements of sense is quote, that the ideas suggested by them are definite and precise while those which deal in generalities are apt to be faint and obscure the difference is like that between things absent and things present of the recommendations possessed by the latter we have a more vivid perception and seem to have a better assurance of the probability of their attainment these circumstances must necessarily in the comparison instituted by the mind in all similar cases to a certain degree incline the balance towards that side add to which that what is present forces itself upon our attention while that which is absent depends for its recurrence upon the capriciousness of memory 
but these advantages are seen upon the very face of them to be of a precarious nature if my idea of virtue benevolence and justice or whatever it is that ought to restrain me from an improper leaning to the pleasures of sense be now less definite and precise they may be gradually and unlimitedly improved if i do not now sufficiently perceive all the recommendations they possess and their clear superiority over the allurements of sense there is surely no natural impossibility in my being made to understand a distinct proposition or in my being fully convinced by an unanswerable argument as to recollection that is certainly a faculty of the mind which is capable of improvement and the point of which i have been once intimately convinced and have had a lively and profound impression will not easily be forgotten when the period of action shall arrive it has been said quote, that a rainy day will frequently convert a man of valor into a coward Close quote. if that should be the case there is no presumption in affirming that his courage was produced by very slight and inadequate motives how long would a sensation of this kind be able to hold out against the idea of the benefits to arise from his valor safety to his family and children defeat to an unjust and formidable assailant and freedom and felicity to be secured to his country in reality the atmosphere instead of considerably affecting the mass of mankind affects in an eminent degree only a small part of that mass the majority are either above or below it are neither too gross to feel strongly these minute variations or too busy to attend to them the case is to a considerable degree the same with the rest of our animal sensations in digestion it has been said perhaps a fit of the toothache renders a man incapable of strong thinking and spirited exertion how far would they be able to maintain their ground against an unexpected piece of intelligence of the most delightful nature pain is probably more formidable in its attack upon us and more exquisitely felt than any species of bodily pleasure yet all history affords us examples where pain has been contemned and defined by the energies of intellectual resolution do we not read of mutius scaevola who suffered his hand to be destroyed by fire without betraying any symptom of emotion and archbishop cramer who endured the same trial two hundred years ago in our own country is it not recorded of anaraxis that while suffering the most excruciating tortures he exclaimed beat on tyrant thou mayst destroy the shell of anaraxarchus but thou canst not touch anaxarsus himself Close quote. the very savage indians sing amidst the wanton tortures that are inflicted on them and tauntingly provoke their tormentors to more ingenious cruelty when we read such stories we recognize in them the genuine characteristics of man man is not a vegetable 
to be governed by sensations of heat and cold, dryness and moisture. He is a reasonable creature, capable of perceiving what is eligible and right, of fixing indelibly certain principles upon his mind, and adhering inflexibly to the resolutions he has made. Let us attend for a moment to the general result of the preceding discussions. The tendency of the whole is to ascertain an important principle in the science of the human mind. If the arguments here adduced be admitted to be valid, it is necessarily follows that whatever can be adequately brought home to the conviction of the understanding may be depended upon as affording a secure hold upon the conduct. We are no longer at liberty to consider man as divided between two independent principles, or imagine that his inclinations are in any way inaccessible through the medium of his reason. We find the thinking principle within us to be uniform and simple, in consequence of which we are entitled to conclude that it is in every respect the proper subject of education and persuasion, and is susceptible of unlimited improvement. There is no conduct in itself reasonable, which the refutation of error and dissipating of uncertainty will not make appear to be such. There is no conduct which can be shown to be reasonable, the reasons of which may not sooner or later be made impressive, irresistible, and matter of habitual recollection. Lastly, there is no conduct, the reasons of which are thus conclusive and thus communicated, which will not infallibly and uniformly be adopted by the man to whom they are communicated. It may not be improper to attend a little to the light which may be derived from these speculations upon certain maxims almost universally received, but which, as they convey no distinct ideas, may be productive of mischief, and can scarcely be productive of good. The first of these is that the passions ought to be purified, but not to be eradicated. Another, conveying nearly the same lesson, but in different words, is that passion is not to be conquered by reason, but by bringing some other passion into contention with it. The word passion is a term extremely vague in its signification. It is used principally in three senses. It either represents the ardor and vehemence of mind with which any object is pursued, or secondly, the temporary persuasion of excellence and desirableness which accompanies any action performed by us contrary to our more customary and usual habits of thinking, or, lastly, those external modes or necessities to which the whole human species is alike subject, such as hunger, the passion between the sexes, and others. In which of these senses is the word to be understood in the maxims above stated? In the first sense, it has sufficiently appeared that none of our sensations, or, which is the same thing, none of our ideas are unaccompanied with a consciousness of pleasure or pain. Consequently, all of our volitions are attended with complacence or aversion. 
In this sense, without doubt, passion cannot be eradicated. But in this sense, also, passion is so far from being incompatible with reason that it is inseparable from it. Virtue, sincerity, justice, and all those principles which are begotten and cherished in us by due exercise of reason will never be very strenuously espoused till they are ardently loved. That is, till their value is clearly perceived and adequately understood. In this sense, nothing is necessary but to show us that a thing is truly good and worthy to be desired in order to excite in us a passion for its attainment. If, therefore, this be the meaning of passion in the above proposition, it is true that passion ought not to be eradicated, but it is equally true that it cannot be eradicated. It is true that the only way to conquer one passion is by the introduction of another. But it is equally true that if we employ our rational faculties, we cannot fail of thus conquering our erroneous propensities. The maxims, therefore, are nugatory. In the second sense, our passions are ambition, avarice, the love of power, the love of fame, envy, revenge, and innumerable others. Miserable indeed would be our condition if we could only expel one bad passion by another of the same kind. And there is no way of rooting out delusion from the mind, but by substituting another delusion in its place. But it has been demonstrated at large that this is not the case. Truth is not less powerful or less friendly exertion than error, and needs not fear its encounter. Falsehood is not, as such a principle would suppose, in which the human mind can exist, so that, if the space which the mind occupies be too much rarefied and cleared, its existence or health will be in some degree injured. On the contrary, we need not fear any sinister consequences from the subversion of error and introducing as much truth into the mind as we can possibly accumulate. All those notions by which we are accustomed to ascribe to anything a value which is does not really possess should be eradicated without mercy, and truth, a sound and just estimate of things which is not less favorable to zeal or activity, should be earnestly and incessantly cultivated. In the third sense of the word passion, as it describes the result of those circumstances which are common to the whole species, such as hunger and the propensity to the intercourse of the sexes. It seems sufficiently reasonable to say that no attempt ought to be made to eradicate them. But this sentiment was hardly worth the formality of a maxim. So far as these propensities ought to be conquered or restrained, there is no reason why this should not be affected by the due exercise of the understanding. For these illustrations, it is sufficiently apparent that the care recommended to us not to extinguish or seek to extinguish our passions is founded in a confused or mistaken view of the subject. 
Another maxim not inferior in reputation to those above recited is that of the following nature. When the term nature here is still more loose and unintelligible than the term passion was before, if it to be meant that we ought to accommodate ourselves to hunger and the other appetites which are common to our species, this is probably true. But these appetites, some of them in particular, lead to excess, and the mischief with which they are pregnant is to be corrected, not by consulting our appetites, but our reason. If it be meant that we should follow instinct, it has been proved that we have no instincts. The advocates of this maxim are apt to consider whatever now exists among mankind as inherent and perpetual, and to conclude that this is to be maintained, not in proportion as it can be shown to be reasonable, but because it is natural. Thus it has been said that man is naturally a religious animal, and for this reason, and not in proportion to our power of demonstrating the being of a god or the truth of Christianity, religion is to be maintained. Thus again it has been called natural, that men should form themselves into immense tribes or nations and go to war with each other. Thus persons of narrow views and observations regard everything as natural and right that happens, however capriciously, or for however short a time, in which they live. The only things which can be said to compose the nature or constitution of man are our external structure, which itself is capable of being modified with indefinite variety. The appetites and impressions growing out of that structure and the capacity of combining ideas and inferring conclusions. The appetites common to the species we cannot wholly destroy. The faculty of reason it would be absurd systematically to counteract, since it is only by some sort of reasoning, bad or good, that we can so much as adopt any system. In this sense, therefore, no doubt, we ought to follow nature, that is, to employ our understandings and increase our discernment, but by conforming ourselves to the principles of our constitution in this respect, we most effectively exclude all following or implicit assent. If we would fully comport ourselves in a manner correspondent to our properties and powers, we must bring everything to the standard of reason. Nothing must be admitted either as principle or precept that will not support this trial. Nothing must be sustained, because it is ancient, because we have been accustomed to regard it as sacred, or because it has been unusual to bring its validity into question. Finally, if by following nature be understood that we must fix our preference upon things that will conduce to human happiness, in this there is some truth. But the truth it contains is extremely darkened by the phraseology in which it is couched. We must consider our external structure so far as relates to the mere question of our preservation. As to the rest, whatever will make a reasonable nature happy will make us happy, and our preference ought to be bestowed upon that species of pleasure 
which has most independence and most animation. The corollaries respecting political truth, deducible from the simple proposition which seems clearly established by the reasonings of the present chapter, that the voluntary actions of men in all instances conformable to the deductions of their understanding are of the highest importance. Hence we may infer what are the hopes and prospects of human improvement. The doctrine which may be founded upon these principles may perhaps best be expressed in the five following propositions. Sound reasoning and truth, when adequately communicated, must always be victorious over error. Sound reasoning and truth are capable of being so communicated. Truth is omnipotent. The vices and moral weakness of man are not invincible. Man is perfectible, or in other words, susceptible of perpetual improvement. These propositions will be found in part synonymous with each other. The time of the inquirer will not be unprofitably spent in copious clearing up of the foundations of moral and political systems. It is extremely beneficial that truth should be viewed on all sides and examined under different aspects. The propositions are even little more than so many different modes of stating the principal topic of this chapter. But if they will not admit each of a distinct train of arguments in its support, it may not, however, be useless to bestow upon each a short illustration. The first of these propositions is so evident that it needs only be stated in order to the being universally admitted. Is there anyone who can imagine that when sound argument and sophistry are fairly brought into comparison, the victory can be doubtful? Sophistry may assume a plausible appearance and contrive to a certain extent to bewilder the understanding, but it is one of the prerogatives of truth to follow it in its mazes and strip it of disguise. Nor does any difficulty from this consideration interfere with the establishment of the present proposition. We suppose truth not merely to be exhibited, but adequately communicated. That is, in other words, distinctly apprehended by the person to whom it is being addressed. In this case, the victory is too small to admit of being controverted by the most inveterate skepticism. The second proposition is that sound reasoning and truth are capable of being adequately communicated by one man to another. This proposition may be understood of such communication either as it affects the individual or the species. First of the individual. In order to its due application in this point of view, opportunity for the communication must necessarily be supposed. The incapacity of human intellect at present requires that this opportunity should be of long duration or repeated occurrence. We do not always know how to communicate all the evidence we are capable of communicating in a single conversation, and much less in a single instant. But if the communicator be sufficiently master of his subject, and if the truth be altogether on his side, he must ultimately succeed in his undertaking.
we suppose him to have sufficient urbanity to conciliate the goodwill and sufficient energy to engage the attention of the party concerned in that case there is no prejudice no blind reverence for established systems no false fear of the interference to be drawn that can resist him he will encounter those one after the other and he will encounter them with success our prejudices our undue reverence and imaginary fears flow out of some views the mind has been induced to entertain they are founded in the belief of some propositions but every one of these propositions is capable of being refuted the champion we describe proceeds from point to point if in any his success have been doubtful that he will retrace and put out of the reach of mistake and it is evidently impossible that with such qualifications and such perseverance he should not ultimately accomplish his purpose such is the appearance which this proposition assumes when examined in a loose and practical view in strict consideration it will not admit of debate man is a rational being if there be any man who is incapable of making inferences for himself or of understanding when stated in the most explicit terms the inferences of another him we consider as an abortive production and not in strictness belonging to the human species it is absurd therefore to say that sound reasoning and truth cannot be communicated by one man to another whether in any case he fails it is that he is not sufficiently laborious patient and clear we suppose of course the person also undertakes to communicate the truth really to possess it and be master of his subject for it is scarcely worth an observation to say that that which he has not himself he cannot communicate to another if truth therefore can be brought home to the conviction of the individual let us see how it stands with the public or the world now in the first place it is extremely clear that if no individual can resist the force of truth it can be only necessary to apply this proposition from individual to individual and we shall at length comprehend the whole thus the affirmation in its literal sense is completely established with respect to the chance of success this will depend first upon the precluding all extraordinary convulsions of nature and after this upon the activity and energy of those to whose hands the sacred cause of truth may be entrusted it is apparent that if justice be done to its merits it includes in it the indestructible germ of ultimate victory every new convert that is made to its cause if he be taught its excellence as well as its reality is a fresh apostle to extend its illuminations through a wider sphere in this respect it resembles the motion of a falling body which increases its rapidity in proportion to the squares of the distances add to which that when a convert to truth has been adequately informed it is barely possible that he should ever fail in his adherence 
whereas error contains in it the principle of its own originality. Thus the advocates of falsehood and mistake must continually diminish and the well-informed adherents of truth incessantly multiply. It has sometimes been affirmed that whenever a question is ably brought forward for examination, the decision of the human species must ultimately be on the right side. But this proposition is to be understood with allowances. Civil policy, magnificent emoluments, and sinister motives may upon many occasions, by distracting the attention, cause the worse reason to pass as if it were the better. It is not absolutely certain that, in the controversy brought forward by Clark and Whiston against the doctrine of the Trinity, or by Collins and Woolston against the Christian revelation, the innovators had altogether the worst of the argument. Yet fifty years after the agitation of these controversies, their effects can scarcely be traced, and things appeared on all sides as if the controversies had never existed. Perhaps it will be said that, though the effects of truth may be obscure for a time, they will break out in the sequel with double luster. But this at least depends upon circumstances. No comet must come in meantime and sweep away the human species. No Attila must have it in his power once again to lead back the flood of barbarism to deluge the civilized world. And the disciples, or at least the books of the original champions, must remain, or their discoveries and demonstrations must be nearly lost to the world. The third of the propositions enumerated is that truth is omnipotent. This proposition, which is convenient for its brevity, must be understood with limitations. It would be absurd to affirm that truth, unaccompanied by the evidence which proves it to be such, or when that evidence is partially and imperfectly stated, has any such property. But it has sufficiently appeared from the arguments already adduced, that truth, when adequately communicated, is, so far as relates to the conviction of the understanding, irresistible. There may indeed be propositions which, though true in themselves, may be beyond the sphere of human knowledge, or respecting which the human beings have not yet discovered sufficient arguments for their support. In that case, Though true themselves, they are not truths to us. The reasoning by which they are attempted to be established is not sound reasoning. It may perhaps be found that the human mind is not capable of arriving at absolute certainty upon any subject of inquiry. And it must be admitted that human science is attended with all degrees of certainty, from his highest moral evidence to the slightest balance of probability. But human beings are capable of apprehending and weighing all these degrees, and to know the exact quantity of probability which I ought to describe to any proposition may be said to be in one sense the possessing certain knowledge. It would further be absurd if we regard truth in relation to its empire over our conduct 
to suppose that it is not limited in its operations by the faculties of our frame. It may be compared to a connoisseur who, however consummate be his talents, can extract from a given instrument only such tones as that instrument will afford. But within those limits, the deduction which forms the principal substance of this chapter proves to us that whatever is brought home to the conviction of the understanding so long as it is present to the mind possesses an undisputed empire over the conduct nor will he who is sufficiently conversant with the science of intellect be hasty in assigning the bounds of our capacity there are some things which the structure of our bodies will render us forever unable to effect but in many cases the lines which appear to prescribe a term to our efforts will like the mists that arise from a lake retire further and further the more closely we endeavour to approach them fourthly the vices and moral weakness of man are not invincible this is the proceeding proposition with a very slight variation in the statement vice and weakness are formed upon ignorance and error but truth is more powerful than any champion that can be brought into the field against it consequently truth has the faculty of expelling the weakness and vice and placing nobler and more beneficent principles in their stead lastly man is perfectible this proposition needs some explanation. By perfectible, it is not meant that he is capable of being brought to perfection, but the word seems sufficiently adapted to express the faculty of being continually made better and receiving perpetual improvement. And in this sense, it is here to be understood. The term perfectible, thus explained, not only does not imply the capacity of being brought to perfection but stands in express opposition to it if we could arrive at perfection there would be an end to our improvement there is however one thing of great importance that it does imply every perfection or excellence that human beings are competent to conceive human beings unless in cases that are palpably and unequivocally excluded by the structure of the frame are competent to attain this is an inference which immediately follows from the omnipotence of truth every truth that is capable of being communicated is capable of being brought home to the conviction of the mind every principle which can be brought home to the conviction of the mind will infallibly produce a correspondent effect upon the conduct if there were not something in the nature of man incompatible with absolute perfection the doctrine of the omnipotence of truth would afford no small probability that he would one day reach it why is the perfection of man impossible the idea of absolute perfection is scarcely within the grasp of human understanding if science were more familiarized to speculations of this sort we should perhaps discover that the notion itself was pregnant with absurdity and contradiction it is not necessary in this argument 
to dwell upon the limited nature of the human faculties. We can neither be present to all places nor to all times. We cannot penetrate into the essences of things, or rather we have no sound or satisfactory knowledge of things external to ourselves, but merely of our own sensations. We cannot discover the causes of things, or ascertain that in the antecedent which connects it with the consequent, and discern nothing but their contiguity. With what pretense can it be that thus shut in on all sides lay claim to absolute perfection? But, not to insist upon these considerations, there is one principle in the human mind which must forever exclude us from arriving at a close of our acquisitions and confine us to perpetual progress. The human, so far as we are acquainted with it, is nothing else but a faculty of perception. All our knowledge, all our ideas, everything we possess as intelligent beings comes from impression. All the minds that exist set out from absolute ignorance. They received first one impression, and then a second. As the impressions became more numerous and were stored by the help of memory, and combined by the faculty of association, so the experience increased, and with the experience, the knowledge. The wisdom? Everything that distinguishes men from what we understand by a clod of the valley. This seems to be a simple and incontrovertible history of intellectual being. And, if it be true, then our accumulations have been incessant in the time that has gone. So, as long as we continue to perceive, to remember or reflect, they must perpetually increase. End of section 9